Chapters 1 and 2 of The Skipper's Wooing by William Wymark Jacobs. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Alan Lord. The Skipper's Wooing by William Wymark Jacobs. Chapter 1. The schooner Seamew of London, Captain Wilson, master and owner, had just finished loading at Northfleet with cement for Brittlesea. Every inch of space was packed. Cement, exuded from the cracks, imparted to the hairy faces of honest seamen a ghastly appearance, sadly out of keeping with their characters, and even took its place, disguised as thickening, among the multiple ingredients of a sea pie that was cooking for dinner. It was not until the decks were washed and the little schooner was once more presentable, that the mate gave a thought to his own toilet. It was a fine, warm morning in May, and some of the cargo had got into his hair and settled in streaks on his hot, good-humoured face. The boy had brought aft a wooden bucket filled with fair water and placed upon the hatch by its side a piece of yellow soap and a towel. Upon these preparations the mate smiled pleasantly, and throwing off his shirt and girding his loins with his braces, he bent over and with much zestful splashing began his ablutions. Twice did the ministering angel, who was not of an age to be in any great concern about his own toilet, change the water before the mate was satisfied, after which the latter, his face and neck aglow with friction, descended to the cabin for a change of raiment. He did not appear on deck again until after dinner, which, in the absence of the skipper, he ate alone. The men, who had also dined, were lounging forward, smoking, and the mate, having filled his own pipe, sat down by himself and smoked in silence. "'I'm keeping the skipper's dinner hot in a small saucepan, sir,' said the cook, thrusting his head out of the galley. "'All right,' said the mate." It's a funny thing where the skipper gets to these times, said the cook, addressing nobody in particular, but regarding the mate out of the corner of his eye. Very rum, said the mate, who was affably inclined just then. The cook came out of the galley and, wiping his wet hands on his dirty canvas trousers, drew near and gazed in a troubled fashion ashore. He's the best captain. I ever sailed under, he said slowly. Ain't it struck you, sir? He's been worried like these here last few trips. I told him as he was going ashore as there was sea pie for dinner. And he says, all right, Joe, he says, just as if I'd said boiled beef and taters or fine morning, sir, or anything like that. The mate shook his head blew out a cloud of smoke and watched it lazily as it disappeared. It strikes me as how he's out of fresh cargo or something, said a stout old seaman who had joined the cook. Look how he's dressing nowadays. Why, the captain of a steamer ain't smarter. Not so smart, Sam, said the remaining seaman, who, encouraged by the peaceful aspect of the mate, had also drawn near. I don't think it's cargo he's after, though. Cement pays all right. 
it ain't cargo, said a small but confident voice. You clear out, said old Sam. A boy of your age shoving his spoken when his elders is talking. What next, I wonder? Where am I to clear to? On my own end of the ship anyway, said the youth vindictively. The men started to move, but it was too late. The mate's latent sense of discipline was roused, and he jumped up in a fury. My, he said, if there ain't the old blasted ship's company aft, every man jack of em. Come down in the cabin, gentlemen. Come down and have a drop of Holland's and a cigar apiece. All the riffraff of the forecastle sitting off and prattling about the skipper like a parcel of washerwomen. And smoking, by smoking. Well, when the skipper comes aboard, he'll have to get a fresh crew or a fresh mate. I'm sick of it. Why, it might be a barge for all the discipline that's kept. The boy's the only sailor among you. He strode furiously up and down the deck. The cook disappeared into the galley, and the two seamen began to bustle about forward. The small expert who had raised the storm, by no means desirous of being caught in the tail of it, put his pipe in his pocket and looked round for a job. Come here, said the mate sternly. The boy came towards him. What was that you were saying about the skipper? demanded the other. I said it wasn't cargo he was after said Henry. Oh, a lot you know about it, said the mate. Henry scratched his leg, but said nothing. A lot you know about it, repeated the mate in a rather disappointed tone. Henry scratched the other leg. Don't let me hear you talking about your superior officer's affairs again, said the mate sharply. Mind that. Nah, sir, said the boy humbly. It ain't my business, of course. What isn't your business? said the mate carelessly. Is, said Henry. The mate turned away seething, and hearing a chuckle from the galley, went over there and stared at the cook, a wretched being with no control at all over his feelings, for quite five minutes. In that short space of time, he discovered that the galley was the dirtiest hole under the sun, and the cook the uncleanest person that ever handled food. He imparted his discoveries to the cook, and after reducing him to a state of perspiring imbecility, turned round and rated the men again, having charged them with insolence when they replied, and with sulkiness when they kept silent. He went below, having secured a complete victory, and the incensed seaman, after making sure that he had no intention of returning, went towards Henry to find fault with him. If you was my boy, said Sam, breathing heavily, I'd thrash you to within an inch of your life. If I was your boy, I should drown myself, said Henry very positively. Henry's father had frequently had occasion to remark that his son favoured his mother, and his mother possessed a tongue which was famed throughout Wapping and obtained honourable mention in distant Limehouse. You can't expect discipline aboard a ship where the skipper won't let you eat the boy, said Dick moodily. It's bad for him, too. Don't you worry about me, my lads, 
said Henry, with offensive patronage. I could take care of myself all right. You ain't seen me come aboard so drunk that I've tried to get down the forecastle without shoving the scuttle back. You never knew me to buy a bundle of forged pawn tickets. You never... Listen to him, said Sam, growing purple. I'll be on for him yet. If you ain't, I will, growled Dick, with whom the matter of the pawn tickets was a sore subject. Boy, yelled the mate, thrusting his head out at the companion. Come in, sir, said Henry. Sorry I can't stop any longer, he said politely. But me and the mates going to have a little chat. I'll have to get another ship, said Dick, watching the small spindly figure as it backed down the companion ladder. I never was on a ship before where the boy could do as he liked. Sam shook his head and sighed. It's the best ship I was ever on, barring that, he said sternly. What'll he be like when he grows up? demanded Dick, as he lost himself in the immensity of the conjecture. It ain't right to the boy to let him go on like that. One good hide in a week would do him good, and us too. Meantime, the object of their care had reached the cabin, and, leaning against the fireplace, awaited the mate's pleasure. Where's the captain? demanded the latter, plunging at once into the subject. Henry turned and looked at the small clock. Walking up and down a street in Gravesend, he said deliberately. Oh, you've got the second sight, I suppose, said the mate, reddening. And what's he doing that for? To see her come out, said the boy. The mate restrained himself, but with difficulty. And what'll he do when she does come out, he demanded. Nothing replied the seer with conviction. "'What are you looking for?' he inquired, with a trace of anxiety in his voice, as the mate rose from the locker and, raising the lid, began groping for something in the depths. "'Bit of rope,' was the reply. "'Well, what did you ask me for?' said Henry, with hasty tearfulness. "'It's the truth. He won't do nothing. He never does. Only stares.' "'You mean to say you ain't been gammoning me?' demanded the mate, seizing him by the collar. "'Come and see for yourself,' said Henry. The mate released him and stood eyeing him with a puzzled expression as a thousand and one little eccentricities on the part of the skipper suddenly occurred to him. "'Go make yourself tidy,' he said sharply. "'And mind, if I find you've been doing me, I'll flay you alive.' The boy needed no second bidding. He dashed up on deck and, heedless of the jibes of the crew, began a toilet such as he had never before been known to make within the memory of man. "'What's up, kiddie?' inquired the cook, whose curiosity became unbearable. "'What you mean?' demanded Henry with dignity. "'Washing and all that,' said the cook, who was a plain creature." "'Don't you ever wash yourself, you dirty pig?' said Henry elegantly. "'I suppose you think doing the cooking keeps you clean, though?' The cook wrung his hands and, unconscious of plagiarism, told Sam he'd be hung for him. "'Me and the mate 
We're going for a little stroll, Sam, observed the youth as he struggled into his jersey. Keep your eyes open and don't get into mischief. You can give Slush your hand with the saucepans if you've got nothing better to do. Don't stand about idle. The appearance of the mate impeded Sam's utterance, and he stood silently by the others, watching the couple as they clambered ashore. It was noticed that Henry carried his head very erect, but whether this was due to the company he was keeping, or the spick-and-span appearance he made, they were unable to determine. Easy! Go easy! panted the mate, mopping his red face with a handkerchief. What are you in such a hurry for? We shall be too late if we don't hurry, said Henry. And then you'll think oh, I've been telling lies. The mate made no further protest, and at the same rapid pace they walked on until they reached a quiet road on the outskirts of Gravesend. There it is, said Henry triumphantly, as he stopped and pointed up the road at the figure of a man slowly pacing up and down. She's at a little school up at the other end, a teacher or something. Here they come. As he spoke, a small damsel with a satchel and a roll of music issued from a house at the other end of the road. The advanced guard of a small company, which in twos and threes now swarmed out and went their various ways. Nice girls, some of them, said Henry, glancing approvingly at them as they passed. Ah, here she comes. I can't say I see much in her myself. The mate looked up and regarded the girl as she approached with considerable interest. He saw a pretty girl with nice grey eyes and a flush, which might be due to the master of the seamew, who was following at a respectful distance behind her, trying to look unconcerned at this unexpected appearance. Hello, her, Jack, he said carelessly. Hello, her said the mate, with a great attempt at surprise. Who'd have thought of seeing you here? The skipper, disdaining to reply to this hypocrisy, stared at Henry until an intelligent and friendly grin faded slowly from that youth's face and left it expressionless. I've just been having a quiet stroll, he said, slowly turning to the mate. Well, so long, said the latter, anxious to escape. The other nodded and turned to resume his quiet stroll at a pace which made the mate hot to look at him. He'll have to look sharp if he's going to catch her now, he said thoughtfully. He won't catch her, said Henry. He never does. At leastways, if he does, he only passes and looks at her out the corner of his eye. He writes letters to her of a night, but he never gives them to her. How do you know? demanded the other. "'Cause I look at him over his shoulder while I'm putting things in the cupboard,' said Henry. The mate stopped and regarded his hopeful young friend fixedly. "'I suppose you look over my shoulder too sometimes,' he suggested. "'You never write to anybody except your wife,' said Henry carelessly, "'or your mother. At leastways, I've never known you too.' You'll come to a bad end, my lad, said the mate, thickly. That's what you'll do. What he does with them, I can't think, continued Henry, disregarding his future. 
He don't give them to her. Ain't got the pluck, I suppose. Phew! Ain't it odd? They got down to the river again, and he hesitated in front of a small beer shop, whose half-open door and a sanded floor offered a standing invitation to passers-by. Could you do a bottle of ginger beer? inquired the mate, attracted in his turn. Nah, said Henry shortly. I couldn't. I don't mind having what you're going to have. The mate grinned and, leading the way in, ordered refreshment for two, exchanging a pleasant wink with the proprietor as that humorist drew the lad's half-pint in a quart pot. Ain't you going to blow the head off, sir? inquired the landlord as Henry, after glancing darkly into the depths and nodding to the mate, buried his small face in the pewter. You'll get your moustache all mussed up if you don't. The boy withdrew his face and, wiping his mouth with the back of his hand, regarded the offender closely. So long as he don't turn it red, I don't mind, he said patiently, and I don't think as how your swipes would hurt anything. He went out, followed by the mate, leaving the landlord wiping down the counter with one hand while he mechanically stroked his moustache with the other. By the time a suitable retort occurred to him, the couple were out of earshot. End of chapter one. Chapter two. Captain Wilson, hot with the combined effects of exercise and wrath, continued the pursuit. But the pause to say sweet nothings to the second in command was fatal to his success. He had often before had occasion to comment ruefully upon the pace of the quarry, and especially at such times when he felt that he had strung his courage almost up to speaking point. Today he was just in time to see a vanish into the front garden of a small house, upon the door of which she knocked with expressive vigour. She disappeared into the house just as he reached the gate. Damn the mate, he said irritably. And the boy, he added, anxious to be strictly impartial. He walked on aimlessly at a slow pace until the houses ended and the road became a lane shaded with tall trees and flanked by hawthorn hedges. Along this he walked a little way and then, nervously fingering a note in his jacket pocket, retraced his steps. I'll see her and speak to her anyway, he muttered. Here goes. He walked slowly back to the house and, with his heart thumping and a choking sensation in his throat, walked up to the door and gave a little whisper of a knock upon it. It was so faint that after waiting a considerable time, he concluded that it had not been heard and raised the knocker again. Then the door opened suddenly, and the knocker, half detained in his grasp, slipped from his fingers and fell with a crash that made him tremble at his hardihood. An elderly woman with white hair opened the door. She repressed a start and looked at him inquiringly. Captain Jackson in? inquired the skipper, his nerves thoroughly upset by the knocker. Who? said the other. Captain Jackson repeated the skipper, reddening. There is no such man here. 
said the old woman. Are you sure it is Captain Jackson you want? She added. I'm, I'm not sure, said Wilson truthfully. The old woman looked at him eagerly. Will you come in? She said slowly and, without giving him time to refuse, led the way into the small front room. The skipper followed her with the conscience of a fox invited into a poultry yard, and bringing up in the doorway, gazed uncomfortably at the girl who had risen at his entrance. This gentleman is inquiring for a Captain Jackson, said the old woman, turning to the girl. I thought he, he doesn't seem quite sure whether it is Captain Jackson he wants. He may bring news, she concluded incoherently. It's not likely, mother, said the girl, regarding the adventurous mariner by no means favourably. There is no Captain Jackson here, sir. Have you been looking for him long? inquired the mother. Years and years, said the other, forgetting himself. The old woman sighed sympathetically. Won't you sit down? she said. Thank you, said the skipper and took the edge of the sofa. "'You're not quite certain of the name,' suggested the girl coldly. "'It... it sounded like Jackson,' murmured the intruder in a small, modest voice. "'It might have been Blackson or Daxon or even Snackson. I won't swear to it.' The old woman put her hand to her brow. "'I thought perhaps you might have brought me some news of my poor husband.' she said at length. I lost him some years ago, and when you came here inquiring for a seafaring man, I thought you might somehow have brought news. You must see, mother, that this gentleman is looking for somebody else, said the girl. You are hindering him from finding Captain Jackson. If he's been looking for him for years, said the old woman, bridling mildly, a few minutes will not make much difference. Certainly not, said Wilson, in a voice which he tried in vain to make stronger. When you say lost, ma'am, you mean missing? Five years, said the old woman, shaking her head and folding her hands in her lap. How long do you say you've been looking for Captain Jackson? Seven said the skipper, with a calmness which surprised himself. And you haven't given up hope, I suppose? Not while life lasts, said the other, studying the carpet. That's the way I feel, said the old woman energetically. What a surprise it'll be when you meet him. For both of them, said the girl. It's five years last May, the 20th of May said the old woman. Since I last saw my poor husband, he... It can't be of any interest to this gentleman, mother, interposed the girl. I'm very much interested, ma'am, said the skipper defiantly. Besides, when I'm looking for poor Jackson, who knows I mightn't run up against the other? Ah, who knows but what you might, said the old woman. There's one gentleman looking for him now, Mr. Glover, my daughter's husband that is to be. There was a long pause. Then the skipper, 
by dint of combining his entire stock of Christianity and politeness, found speech. I hope he finds him, he said slowly. All that a man can do, he's doing, said the old lady. He's a commercial traveller by trade, and he gets about a great deal in the way of business. Have you tried advertising? inquired the skipper, striving manfully to keep his interest up to its former pitch. The other shook her head and looked uneasily at her daughter. It wouldn't be any good, she said in a low voice. It wouldn't be any good. Well, I don't want to pry into your business in any way, said Wilson, but I go into a good many ports in the course of the year. And if you think it would be any use my looking about, I'll be pleased and proud to do so. If you'll give me some idea of who to look for. The old lady fidgeted with all the manner of one half desiring and half fearing to divulge a secret. You see, we lost him in rather peculiar circumstances, she said, glancing uneasily at her daughter again. He... I don't want to know anything about that, you know, ma'am, interposed the skipper gently. It would be no good advertising for my father, said the girl in her clear voice, because he can neither read nor write. He's a very passionate, hasty man, and five years ago he struck a man down and thought it killed him. We've seen nothing and heard nothing of him since. He must have been a strong man commented the skipper. He had something in his hand, said the girl, bending low over her work. But it didn't hurt him, really. The man was at work two days after, and he bears him no ill will at all. He might be anywhere, said the skipper, meditating. He would be sure to be where there are ships, said the old lady. I'm certain of it. You see, he was captain of a ship himself a good many years, and for one thing, he couldn't live away from the water, and for another, it's the only way he has of getting a living, poor man, unless he's gone to sea again, which isn't likely. A coasting trade, I suppose, said the skipper, glancing at two or three small craft which were floating in oil round the walls. The old lady nodded. Those were his ships, she said, following his glance. But the painters never could get the clouds to please him. I shouldn't think there was a man in all England harder to please with clouds than he was. What sort of looking man is he? inquired Wilson. I'll get you a portrait, said the old lady, and she rose and left the room. The girl from her seat in the window by the geraniums, stitched on steadily. The skipper, anxious to appear at his ease, coughed gently three times and was on the very verge of a remark about the weather when she turned her head and became absorbed in something outside. The skipper fell to regard in the clouds again, with even more disfavour than the missing captain himself could have shown. That was taken just before he disappeared, said the old lady, entering the room again and handing him a photograph. You can keep that. The skipper took it 
and gazed intently at the likeness of a sturdy, full-bearded man of about sixty. Then he placed it carefully in his breast pocket and rose to his feet. And if I should happen to drop across him, he said slowly, what might his name be? Gething, said the old lady, and Captain Gething. If you should see him, and would tell him that he has nothing to fear, and that his wife and his daughter Annis are dying to see him, you will have done what I can never, never properly thank you for. I'll do my best, said the other warmly. Good afternoon. He shook hands with the old woman, and then, standing with his hands by his side, looked doubtfully at Annis. Good afternoon, she said cheerfully. Mrs. Gething showed him to the door. Any time you are at Gravesend, Captain, we should be pleased to see you and hear how you get on, she said as she let him out. The captain thanked her, pausing at the gate to glance covertly at the window. But the girl was bending over her work again, and he walked away rapidly. Until he had reached his ship and was sitting down to his belated dinner, he had almost forgotten, in the joyful excitement of having something to do for Miss Gething, the fact that she was engaged to another man. As he remembered this, he pushed his plate from him and, leaning his head on his hand, gave way to a fit of deep melancholy. He took the photograph from his pocket and, gazing at it intently, tried to discover a likeness between the father and daughter. There was not sufficient to warrant him in bestowing a chaste salute upon it. What do you think of that? he inquired, handing it over to the mate, who had been watching him curiously. Any friend of yours? inquired the mate cautiously. No, said the other. Well, I don't think much of him, said the mate. Where'd you get it? It was given to me, said the skipper. He's missing, and I've got to find him if I can. You might as well keep your eyes open too. Where are you going to look for him? asked the mate. Everywhere, said the other. I'm told that he's likely to be in a seaport town, and if you'll be on the lookout, I'll take it as a favour. I'll do that, of course, said the mate. What's he been doing? Nothing that I know of, said the skipper. But he's been missing some five years, and I promised I'd do my best to find him. Friends are anxious, I suppose, said the mate. Yes, said the other. I was fined continued the mate, that women are more anxious in these sort of cases than men. More tender-hearted, said the skipper. It ain't a bad sort of face now I come to look at it, said the baffled mate, regarding it closely. Seems to me I've seen somebody very much like it. Girl, I think, but I can't say where. Bearded lady at a fair, I should think, said the skipper bluffly. Conversation was interrupted by the appearance of Henry, who, seeing the photograph in the mate's hand, at once began putting the butter away. A glance had told him that the mate was holding it upside down, and conscience told him that this was for his benefit. 
He therefore rigidly averted his gaze while clearing the table, and in a small mental ledger, which he kept with scrupulous care for items such as these, made a debit entry in the mate's account. Boy, said the skipper suddenly. Sir, said Henry. You're a fairly sharp youngster, I think, said the skipper. Take hold of that photo there. Henry's face suffused with a great joy. He looked derisively at the mate and took the photograph from him, listening intently to much the same instructions as had been previously given to the mate. And you can take it forward, concluded the skipper, and let the men see it. The men, said Henry in astonishment. Yes, the men. Don't I speak plain, retorted the skipper. Very plain, sir said the boy. But they'll only make a muddle of it, sir. A fancy fat salmon, a cook, and dick. Do as you're told, said the other irascibly. Of course, sir, said Henry. But they'll only worry me with a lot of questions as to who he is and uh, what you want him for. You take it for it, said the skipper, and tell them there's a couple of sovereigns for the first man that finds him. The youth took the photograph and after another careful scrutiny with the object of getting a start in the race for wealth, took it forward. Fat Sam, it seemed, had seen the very man only two days before at Poplar. The cook knew his features as well as he knew those of his own mother, while Dick had known him for years as an old and respected inhabitant of Plymouth. Henry went back to the skipper, and having furnished him with this information, meekly suggested that they should drag Gravesend first. It was midnight when they got the anchor up and dropped silently down the river. Gravesend was silent, and the dotted lines of street lamps shone over a sleeping town as the seamew crept softly by. A big steamer in front whistled warningly for the pilot's boat, and slowing up as the small craft shot out from the shore to meet it, caused a timely diversion to the skipper's melancholy by lying across his bows. By the time he had fully recovered from the outrage and had drunk a cup of coffee, which had been prepared in the galley, Gravesend had disappeared round the bend, and his voluntary search had commenced. End of chapter 2